A nation divided, a government struggling for legitimacy. Today we're talking sedition and revolution, the revolution of 1776, that is. This is all of us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station, 103.5 FM, and streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. I'm Greg Grinberg. My guest today is Steve Pincus, Bradford Durfee Professor of History at Yale University and author of The Heart of the Declaration, The Founder's Case for an Activist Government, which came out in September of this year. Today we'll be discussing the ideas expressed in the Declaration of Independence and the principles on it which it was based in a time of political crisis, and what it can tell us about the state of our government today and where we go from here. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, Steve, I'd like to start by talking about the people's right of revolution uh, that's expressed in the Declaration and on which it heavily relies. So, to start with, what is what is that? What is the people's right of revolution? So, uh, the founders have been uh, immersed or steeped in uh, a long tradition of uh, revolutionary thinking and revolutionary action, uh, and in particular, they traced um, their ideas to to England's Revolution of 1688 which is known in, uh, now known as the Glorious Revolution. Uh, and in particular, they turned to a series of extremely important political thinkers who were associated with the Whig Party, um, uh, the most important of which, at least in the beginning, was John Locke, uh, whose second treatise of government argued that, uh, in essence, that if uh, your situation under government or under a particular government was worse than it was in the state of nature, that you not only had a right, but an obligation to rebel against that government. Um, And it was very much that set of arguments which informed the founders. So in the founders' view, um, uh, and this was the view expressed in the Declaration of Independence, but also in a number of pamphlets and in uh, uh, a series of, of debates in the Second Continental Congress, Their view was that up until 1760, the British Empire had been a beneficent government. It had done more uh, to help uh, uh, colonial development and and the North American colonies in particular than the French Empire had done for its colonies or the Spanish Empire had done for its colonies. In particular, they celebrated the fact uh, that the British uh, the British Empire um, provided uh, subsidies, or in the language of the of the 18th century, bounties to pr- uh, to promote uh, colonial economic development, uh, to development of agriculture, development of industry. Uh, they were uh, extremely happy that the British government had subsidized immigration uh, to British uh, North America throughout the uh, throughout the 18th century, and in particular, uh, they celebrated the fact that when the new province of Georgia was founded in the 1730s. Uh, the British government completely paid for all of the new migrants and gave them sort of two years of startup costs. Um, and they also thought that the British government had done a huge amount to promote the trade or the commerce of, of colonial North, uh, North America. Um, but in 1760, um, uh, King George III, when he came to the crown, he reversed all of these policies, or he and his ministers, most importantly the Prime Minister George Grenville and Lord North, reversed these policies um, and, in fact, um, uh, pro- uh, withdrew all of these subsidies for colonial development uh, and made it very difficult for the colonies to trade and made it almost impossible for people to... to emigrate uh, to North America. And by doing all that, they thought they were th- that George III and his ministers were strangling the North American economy uh, and making it impossible for, for humble folk to, to make a living. And that was the situation uh, in which they thought it was important, uh, uh, it was possible to explore 
uh, the possibility of revolution. But even then, uh, the founders thought the first thing to do was to try to bring down the government. So in 1774 and 1775, they sent petitions to Parliament arguing that what they were doing was disastrous uh, and uh, and uh, hoping for lobbying from their political allies in Great Britain. When that failed in 1775, it was at that point that a number of members of the Second Continental Congress began to explore independence or uh, in uh, uh, revolution, uh, uh, the, a revolutionary break from, from the British Empire. You know, I find that so fascinating that the uh, you know that that certainly their first inclination was not to revolt against the government, and yet we're talking about a period in time that's only sixteen years that's in contention. If what I'm hearing is is right, that's right. I mean, so so they they believed that's right. I mean, it was a 16 year reversal. Um, although I mean, it's important to place this in context that the revolution of 1688-89 involved, uh, in one reading, merely a three year reversal of of policies which led led to revolution. But um, in the ca- in both cases, but but uh, in the case of the North Americans and in, in in the 18th century, uh, the feeling was is that it was not only uh, it was a reversal in the sense of a 180-degree shift, uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, that the kinds of policies uh, that had uh, British North America had uh, had led to British North American develop- development had been radically reversed. Um, and in their view, the whole reason for them, for most of the of the migrants having come to North America, was no longer present. That many of them came to pursue, uh, in the first instance, new economic op- opportunities. In some cases, and again, the major- minority of cases, but also a greater degree of religious liberty. And they also thought that that was potentially under threat. Um, but it was the economic opportunities that most people came to North America for, and they believed that that was those were being eliminated uh, by this by uh, government under George III. So it was in that, those circumstances that they thought revolution, I mean, again, uh, revolution should be explored. It wasn't the first best solution. The first best solution was to lead to imperial reform. When imperial reform became impossible, revolution became the best alternative. Right. And I think what's really interesting is that when we think about, and when we talk about the Declaration of, of Independence and we talk about the revolution, we often talk about um, you know freedom from a tyrannical government, uh, an oppressive regime, um, you know, we talk about, you know, the quartering act, you know, but what I think is so interesting in your book is that you lay out the case that that before 1760, the government of Britain was actually doing a lot of good things for uh, for the colonists. And that so so they were actually creating freedom too. they were creating economic freedoms uh, here that that wouldn't have existed without, you know, in, in an anarchist in an anarchist state. A- absolutely. And so so, I mean, I think it's important to, to realize the founders didn't accept the radical distinction between freedom from and freedom to. Um, They thought a good government was not just a necessary evil, but a government which made it possible to pursue happiness, which meant general welfare. So their view was that that government had an affirmative obligation, not just to make you safe, but to make it possible for its subjects or citizens uh, to live a better life. And that frequently involved... uh, government intervening in a direct way. So, uh, whereas some people uh, describe the revolution uh, as uh, trying to create a limited government because government was always a necessary evil, most of the founders uh, believed quite the opposite, that government was a positive good, and that up until 1760, the British government had been a positive good, making it possible uh, uh, for people to live better lives. Mm. Now, I know that sometimes um, counterfactual questions or hypothetical questions are sort of frowned upon in the in the historical community. 
I'm curious, though, if you'd venture a guess as to what uh, the founders would think of our political discourse today, you know, specifically in, you know, the debates that we're having over, you know, the role of government and should government, you know, you know, these pretty basic programs, you know, like the the SNAP program, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, you know, formerly known as food stamps, you know, and, and this and this push from the right to to scale back that program dramatically, you know, that being like just one example of the kind of debate that we're having today and what the founders would right. think of it. No, I mean, they, they would, I mean, on the whole, uh, they would have found these debates extremely surprising. Their view was that government in the, I mean, their view was, is that the, the great development in government or in states uh, since the end of the 17th century is that states actually did good in the world. Uh, and their view was uh, what the British state had been particularly good about uh, was about promoting uh, general prosperity for for most people, but most importantly for raising the standard of living for, for, of the lower orders uh, in a in a significant way. So they, uh, uh, the founders, and again, I mean, the Second Continental Congress, the resolutions of the Second Continental Congress are filled with resolutions trying to create industry, trying to create manufacturers, trying to create jobs. Uh, for uh, people in uh, in North America, so and, and and I think they would have been found it rather surprising to see um, this defense of small government uh, um, by a number of people. I mean, as you say, on the political right today in North America, because in their view, um, it was precisely that uh, George Grenville, the Prime Minister of Great Britain from the 1763, or Lord North, who was Prime Minister at the outbreak of the American Revolution, um, that they had responded to a debt crisis in Britain in the 18th century by pursuing austerity measures and mm. restricting government spending. Sounds and familiar. That, right. And that's what they thought, uh, that's what they thought necessitated political action. So I think they would have found calls for cutbacks in various federal programs uh, extremely surprising. I mean, the one thing that I think they would have been very happy about is uh, that, uh, you know, I mean, the, the president-elect is talking about a big infrastructure program. And for them, uh, that would have seen, I mean, in the, you know, in the last clauses of the Declaration of Independence, um, uh, the founders call for a government that would obviously make, uh, make war, make peace, etc., but also establish commerce. And what they meant by establishing commerce was precisely building roads, building bridges, etc., to make it possible for the new republic to become commercially vibrant. So infrastructure, they would have been happy there was a discussion about. They would have been very disappointed to see these sort of cutbacks in these various federal programs. Absolutely. You know, though, I wonder um, in the case of infrastructure, what they would have thought of the notion that infrastructure might be privatized and that, you know, it would be you know self-funded by revenue. In other words, it's a framework. It's a you know, it's an infrastructure for economic development, but it's pay to play and it's only it's only for people who can right. afford to use it. So, I mean, so this is an interesting I mean, this is an interesting question. So in in the 18th century, um, the British government pursued both strategies with respect to infrastructure in England. Uh, they passed things called Turnpike Acts, which all, all the Turnpike Acts did was to create a right of passage, a right of way, um, and then local communities would build the roads. So that seems somewhat similar to this kind of uh, uh, pay-to-play system. There would be self-funding, et cetera, et cetera. Outside of England, in Ireland, Scotland, and the rest of the empire, however, the government acted directly. And it acted directly precisely because uh, uh, because the notion was um, that if you really want to get the economy going, if you really want to get a, a, a sort of jumpstart an economy, 
the government needed to do this directly, um, and that it needed to be uh, the most, uh, uh, you know, the most efficient. Uh, that was the most efficient way of doing things. Whereas in England, where the economy was already quite advanced, it didn't really matter who ultimately was going to be pa- was going to be paying for it. But but in the case, I mean, when you're trying to get uh, the economy really jumpstart and make it much more dynamic, you need direct government action. So I think they would have been skeptical, I, uh, I think, of, of various proposals to have, um, you know, uh, to privatize infrastructure. I mean, their, their basic idea was that the infrastructure that you really need, that's absolutely essential to get the economy going, the government needs to do itself. Um, you know, if you want to build, you know, if you want to build sort of luxury roads, roads, uh, you know, uh, Yes, you could do that on a private basis, but I think I think most infrastructure uh, and the stuff that was really vital to the economy needed to be uh, directly funded by the government. Yeah, I mean, in taking a step back, one of the things that seems so ironic to me is that the the calls today for small government are made on sort of originalist grounds. That- That's right. Yeah, I mean, so so I mean, and, and that's I mean, in a sense, the the the, the central argument of of my book, The Heart of the Declaration is that that just is completely misguided. I, I don't I don't disagree that we should look at our look to our first principles because I think in times of political change we should look to first principles as a as a guiding notion. But those first principles uh, were not about small government. They were in fact about an activist government. Um, and uh, you know when John Adams, you know the second president of the United States, when he wrote to his wife celebrating uh, uh, the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, the bits of the declaration which he quoted were the bits about creating a state, a government that would, among other things, establish com- commerce. In other mm. words, he celebrated the fact that they were creating an activist government. So in the view of the founders, the problem with the British Empire was not that it was a government that it was doing too much. It was a government that since 1760 had done too little to promote the development of North America. So they were, from the beginning, uh, huge fans of activist government. And it's really, and and again, it just seems so interesting to me that that their complaints and that 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 litany of complaints against King George, which is which is a beautiful thing to read in the Declaration, that 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 litany of complaints really spans a sixteen-year time frame. That's right, right. I mean, so so I mean, again, um, when scholars, when historians look at that list of complaints, the things that jump out or used to jump out at scholars were the complaints about things that the government had done since 1770, the Boston Port Act, mm. the Quartering Act, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but those were all reactions mm. against uh, uh, colonial complaints of things that had gone on since 1763. And that's why the, there's a set of complaints about the shift of government policy immediately. I mean, after 1763, right? I mean, it, it's, it's in, the founders say in the Declaration, these are bad things that happened since George III came to the throne, not since 1769, right? I mean, in other words, they see it as a sort of long-term set of economic policies. Um, and in particular, they were concerned about the, the long-term attempts to shut down trade uh, of British, uh, British North America, long-term attempts to stop immigration uh, to British North America, long-term att- uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, one of the other things that I talk about uh, in the book um, is also long-term attempts to prevent colonial efforts to to halt uh, or at least slow down the slave trade, and that's that's definitely a topic that I'd really like to get into. So, I mean, so first of all, you know, the, just something that you said jumped out that they were complaining about the government's interfering with people immigrating to the colonies. 
It's just such an interesting reversal that that we're seeing now that we've gone from sort of welcoming everyone to come in and contribute to this, you know, to yeah. this melting pot. And then and now we're we've sort of reverted to xenophobia somehow. Well, that's right. And I think I mean, there are two points, two larger points to be made here. I mean, one one uh, uh, I'll talk about immigration in just a second. But I think it's profoundly important to realize that uh, the founders were committed internationalists. Their great complaint uh, about the policies of George III was that they were isolating uh, uh, British North America from the rest of the world, uh, economically, socially, and culturally. And in a real sense, they were com- they were concerned that even within Britain, uh, uh, George III's policies were ha- was having uh, the uh, the British turn their backs on Europe or engagement with Euro- with Europe uh, and focusing on you know, their own empire. So there was a concern about the kind of uh, xenophobia or little Englandism uh, uh, even then. And the founders very much wanted uh, uh, international commerce, international connections um, uh, in in a profound way. But with respect to to immigration, I mean, we forget that in the Declaration of of Independence itself, the founders blamed George III, and I quote, uh, uh, for uh, endeavoring to prevent the population of these states um, and and they complained uh, that uh, that George III had obstructed the laws for naturalizing foreigners in the Declaration and had reversed long-standing British imperial policy by refusing to pass laws to encourage migrations hither. Mm-hmm. So it, it was just that up until 1760, the British government had encouraged immigration uh, uh, to British North America. Um, and um, uh, so, I mean... The Declaration of Independence, if it, if it was, you know, to sort of coin a phrase, uh, our first contract with America, that first contract with America was about supporting immigration to North America. Um, uh, and uh, they very much believed that new immigrants would bring with them not only new skills, which they thought were extremely important, but would also themselves prove inevitably to be consumers of goods and therefore, the inter- by through the interplay of consumption and production, help drive economic growth. Mm. I mean, it's a really beautiful idea. You create this infrastructure in which everyone, you make it easier for everyone to do what they need to do. And you invite others who are enterprising to come in and participate in that. And you get a thriving ecosystem. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of a startup accelerator today, just a startup accelerator being on a much smaller yeah. scale. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, their their idea, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and their idea is that it will be a, a self-perpetuating process. That is to say, if you build the roads, they will come. Uh, if they come, they'll demand more roads. Hmm. I mean, so so um, and they'll help build them. And they'll help build them, right? Hmm. And so the idea was that Im- you know immigrants, government activity, consumption, production, they all worked together to sort of drive perpetual growth. Absolutely. And I mean, looking at another piece of the declaration that that jumps out at me, it, it says prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which that they are they are accustomed. And and, and again, it just seems so interesting to me that we're talking about uh, in in that language that it's something that they had been putting up with for less than less than two decades. Um, and meanwhile, we're still we're still having the same arguments that we've been having for forty or fifty years about social programs here. You know, so it, it seems it seems that we are far. Um, more disposed to suffer than the than the founders. Well, that's right, and and yeah. and I and I mean I think that that's that that's absolutely right. I mean the, the so so um, 
the founders, uh, like John Locke, thought that it wasn't terribly dangerous to talk about a right of revolution because most people in their everyday lives were intrinsically conservative, that we tend mm. to kind of accept uh, the world that we live in. Mm. And it's only when that world becomes intolerable do we, uh, do we contemplate re revolt. But on a societal level, it's going to be even slower than that because, um, you know, it, it, you're not going to revolt if you think you're, you're a lone wolf. Uh, you know, a lone voice crying out in the wilderness, you're going to want to have fellows moving along with you. So you're going to wait until there's a, there you feel within your community, there's a widespread, widespread perception of that. Um, but, it, uh, but uh, you know, it, it's interesting to sort of reading documents, reading letters, diaries, et cetera, from, from people in the uh, uh, 1760s and 1770s. You know, in 1765, um, at the time of the, of the Stamp Act crisis, the overwhelming majority of North Americans, as much as they didn't like the Stamp Act, thought the British Empire was an incredibly benevolent thing because that had been what it, had been, what it was like for most of their lives. Um, whereas by 1775, you know, uh, you know, in that decade, um, there was a sea change in sentiment. And I think you're right, that they, that they tended to become discontented rather more quickly um, than we have been. Now, to be fair... Um, uh, you know, in that 10-year window, there was only about a year and a half in which there was a more progressive government in Britain. So you might have felt, one, one might have been excused for having uh, felt, if you were a North American, that the hope of real imperial reform was, was fairly limited. Whereas, obviously, uh, in, in, you know, in our lifetimes, there's, uh, things have moved back and forth between Republican and Democratic presidents. Um, uh, and uh, that, you know... Uh, uh, that Congress has done some more and some less things uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, social programs, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's a, it's, you know, it's not, I mean, one, one could see from certain perspectives, one could see things as being a little bit less dark than it might've seemed to people in the 1760s or 1770s. Um, but I do think you're absolutely right to say that, um, you know, they were rather less patient in some ways than I think most people in North America. Mm. I mean, and fast forwarding to today, uh, when, you know, when to, to the, to those who see Republicans and, and Democrats as essentially different sides of the same coin, um, you know, and, and who would go on to right. say that, you know, we've, we have through, uh, democratic administrations and Republican administrations with Republican majorities in Congress and democratic majorities in Congress, we have seen persistent social issues that, you know, tens of millions of people living in poverty, um, mass incarceration of, of, of nonviolent offenders, including an intentionally racist war on drugs. And, right, and, you know, and deep mass deportations under administrations, uh, Republican or Democrat. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, if, the, if, the yeah. two, if the two of us were to write right. a list yeah. here, I think yeah. we could make King George look pretty good. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, th I think that I think that that's that's absolutely right. Um, so so, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's it's certainly the case that um, um, a number of, uh, you know, along a number of axes, there's been slow very slow reform, if any reform at all, in some cases, you know, no reform and some steps backwards. Um, uh, and I think it's, it's fair to say, uh, that, that in the 18th century, when the pun pendulum swung from, 
you know, a conservative government to a more, I mean, these are anachronistic terms, but a, a more liberal government from a, uh, to use the terms of the, of the 18th century, mm-hmm. from an establishment Whig government to a patriot Whig government, those pendulum swings were much, much wider than the swings which we have, uh, we have in the, at least in the 20th and 21st centuries, that the, that, um, the ideological differences were much, much greater and the kinds of programs that they pursued were much more at variance than I think, uh, you know, has happened between a Democratic and Republican administration. And of course, you know, part of that is, um, you know, part of that is absolutely ideological proximity, but a lot of it is also uh, institutional, institutional ossification. I mean, that is to say um, that, that it's very difficult to get a lot done uh, uh, with, you know, in Congress today, uh, or in, uh, in, uh, in a variety of ways. And I think, I think it's, it's very hard to move, uh, to move the pendulum, uh, in very radical or radical directions. I think in, in either ways, I mean, one of the things, uh, that I think, I mean, I, you know, uh, last week or a week and a half ago, I was in Washington and talking to some people in political circles and a number of Democrats were saying, yes, there are all these horrible things that Trump might do, might want to do, but actually can't do. Um, and, but I think the same thing obviously goes for, you know, perhaps a more, uh, if one were to have a more progressive, dem- uh, you know, Democrat in power, I think they would also be limited by, by, you know, the structures and institutions. Absolutely. I mean, just six years ago, we had a Democratic president, the newly elected Obama administration, and we had majorities, Democrats had majorities in both houses of Congress. Right. And mm. yes, not a lot got done. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, maybe with the exception of the of the Affordable, the Affordable Care, Care Act, Act, which, right. you know, is, right. is incredible. But um, so at the same time, uh, so 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 what I so the founders, they've been suffering for 16 years with a government that was that was not that was not just oppressing them in various ways, but was failing to meet their economic needs. And that was the substance of it. So they've been suffering with this for 16 years. Now, I'd love to talk about their process. As they think about so, you, so as you mentioned, they they initially tried to work within the the British government to to, to redress right. their grievances, and then eventually turned outside the the laws of the British Empire and appealed to this this thing called natural law. That's right, right. Um, one other so there's one other piece of the puzzle that I just want to mention before I get to natural law, and that is that one needs to remember that the British Empire was a global empire, um, and. To, for the North Americans, it was extremely important that the British government had experimented with what they saw as incredibly repressive measures in their new colony, uh, uh, the new British imperial colony uh, in Bengal. And so it was very, and, and, and just to sort of give you a sense of how important this was, um, the anticipated revenue from Bengal uh, was be- was over uh, two million pounds a year, whereas the anticipated revenue from British North America was about sixty thousand pounds a year. So it was a big deal. Uh, North Americans read about it, and Bengal. The reason why the revenue was so big is because Bengal was the most advanced manufacturing society in the world at the time, producing calicos or uh, 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 various cotton textiles that everybody in the world wanted. Um, and just in a few short years, the British Empire had had overseen one of the, a gigantic famine in Bengal um, and had radically uh, reduced the exports of of uh, Bengali uh, textiles. So North Americans looked to that and said, you know, uh, what they're doing here is pretty bad, but we're looking at what's going on over there, and that seems to be a pre, uh, you know, uh, 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 be able uh, a model for what's going to happen to us. So this sort of accelerated the concerns. 
but now let me sort of turn to turn to natural law. Um, yeah, I mean, so so the position of the founders um, was simply that in the state of nature, um, things were not great, but they weren't horrible. That one could have property in the state of nature um, uh, as long as you could defend your property, but anything you worked on, you could keep for yourself. Um, and, you know, most people... Uh, uh, would respect that property. Now, of course, the problem in the state of nature was that if somebody didn't respect that property, didn't respect your work, there was no way to defend yourself otherwise, other than your brute fists. Um, um, So their view was, um, given that there was some property in the state of nature, and given that, you know, you could think, you could do various things, um, any government which made your property less secure than it was in the state of nature. I mean, just to focus on the economic issues was you had a natural right to resist because you entered into government, you gave up certain privileges precisely so that your lives would be better off. And if your lives were not better off, then uh, you had a right to get rid of that government. So to paraphrase, if the government, in in their view, if the government uh, led you to a state in which you had less freedom than you did in the state of nature, then you, as the people, you have a collective right and perhaps responsibility to either reform or abolish that government right. and start a new one. Right. I mean, I guess, I mean, I don't, I, I guess I would, I mean, I, I would agree with the general sentiments. The only thing that I would say is that for them, I mean, we like to, like to talk about freedom a lot. Um, they like to talk about happiness hmm. uh, and equality. Um and the the point which I want to make is that they were much more interested in experience than in theories. Um, so if the government made you less happy, if you, you felt less well off, if you felt less able to exercise, uh, you know, I mean, your freedom of speech or your freedom of religion or the things that they thought were intrinsic, what was important was the lack of the exercise thereof um, than actually the sort of theory of the freedom. And again, with respect to equality, um, their idea was that, um, you know, if you were made to be intrinsically unequal in that state, if there was no way to exercise anything like your natural equality, um, then that was bad. Um, but again, it was less about, they were less focused net, uh, necessarily on rights per se than on practices. And I think that that's uh, extremely important. And the reason why I want to talk about practices rather than rights is because um, the law um, was heavily disputed. And in, in philosophical circles, um, there were lots of debates about you know what rights people had. Um, but it was the practice of not being, I mean, and, and let me just sort of give, give one sort of concrete way. It, in in the 18th century, in 1740, if you were um, living in New York and you went to uh, a shop to buy a loaf of bread, you would pay for that loaf of bread in a Spanish piece of eight because that was the only coin you had. The only way you were going to be able to get that Spanish piece of eight is with with if some merchants in New York were being able to trade to Spanish America. But the British government in 1763 uh, stationed the Navy to make it impossible to trade with Spanish America. And at the same time, in seven, or 1764, the next year, they passed the Currency Act, which made it impossible for the New York legislature to print paper money. So how would you go to a store to buy bread? Well, you could only go to a store and buy bread and say, well, um, you know, I'm good for it. I'll borrow, you know, borrow the money. Mm. But in a very practical way, you know, if you can't go to the store and buy bread, um, that that's a real kind of restriction on your your uh, your ability to pursue your own happiness. 
Absolutely. And so they were so they were very much concerned with um, with the actual experience. And so and so today they might be appalled by the you know surveys that that suggest that many Americans are, despite everything that has happened in the last 240 years, significantly unhappy. You know, that's oh, right. I mean, it, yes. I mean, the level of social inequality, I think, that would have been appalling to them. Um, I mean, remember, uh, you know, uh, historians on both the left and the right talk about uh, the truncated nature of colonial society. That is to say, there were no fantastically wealthy people, but there also weren't very many poor people. Wages in North America in the seven in the 18th century were higher than pretty much any place else in the year, uh, in the world, which meant that you know if you came here with nothing, you could do pretty well uh, uh, in your lifetime because wages were so high. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, so it, were they to experience a world in which, in which, you know, huge numbers of people can't make a living wage, they would found that really, really appalling. Mm. No, in, in the right of exercise that, that you spoke of, that is, is really interesting too, because, and there's some, there's some irony here because some of the very same people who signed the declaration of independence went on to be instrumental in crafting the constitution. And today now we have a situation where, um, they, they, they have been, they have affected the, the, the found the, the framers of the constitution have, uh, w- have been very effective in, um, creating friction points in, in passing laws, for example, um, which was, I take it intentional. And what's happened is that now we have a situation where we have laws on the books that we, some of which are bad, that are equally difficult to get rid of, um, as it is to pass legislation in the first place. And so, and, and, and of course we don't have, um, the right of initiative or referendum or recall at the, um, at the federal level. Um, where, whereas in at least the newer States we do in California, for example, we have all three of those things. So I'm kind of curious and I'm I'm sort of fascinated by the irony that the, um, the, that the, that the founders wrote this document, which now really does in many ways prevent us from freely exercising at least our political will in, in the existing system. And there's very little, there's very little recourse. Right. Well, let me sort of talk a little bit about what I see. And this is, you know, somewhat iconoclastic as an argument that I make and have been making, but I, I'm finding more and more scholars turning to this, um, is that part of the reason why, um, government inaction happens or is happening right rather uh, is largely because of a misconceived understanding of sovereignty as the founders understood it so um, the the standard view um, in the literature was that you know in Britain there was this thing called monarchical sovereignty and the great achievement of the Americans was to establish something like popular sovereignty um, uh, and that the only problem was is that the founders couldn't decide whether pop, whether popular sovereignty was best manifest in the national government or in the states. Um, in fact, that misunderstands fundamentally uh, how the founders understood sovereignty. The founders were men. Uh, uh, I mean, they were mostly men, but I think it's also important to realize that a lot of women uh, were very much up on these on these debates. I mean, if one reads. Uh, the correspondence with someone like uh, Mercy Otis Warren or Abigail Adams, um, they were, you know, very much part of this debate, even if they weren't sitting in the Continental Congress, they were very much people who understood what was going on. Um, so uh, uh, the men and women of the 18th century, by and large, in 18th century uh, North America, were men and women of the Enlightenment. Um, and their view was that since the late 17th century, governments 
um, had not only been able to do a lot more stuff, they'd also become much more complex. Um, and in their view, um, this meant that in modern states, and this is, patriots said this over and over again on both sides of the Atlantic in the 18th century, in modern states, um, the goal of the government of states was to get stuff done. And they were rather indifferent whether it happened at the national level or the local level. The important thing was to improve the lives of the subjects or citizens, depending on whether you lived in a monarchy or a republic. But the idea they all agreed was that the state was supposed to make their lives better. Um, and the state, the government would figure out at what le- which level of activity things could happen. Now, jump forward. I mean, so that's sort of a, a broadly held view uh, in in. Uh, Enlightenment Europe, but also in uh, Enlightenment North America and South America. So jump forward to the 1770s uh, and and uh, and uh, think of somebody like, well, in the 1780s, somebody like James Madison in Federalist 39. He says our government is neither is both federal and national, meaning that um, some things are going to take place at the center and some things are going to take place at the locality. And the reason why he was so vague or um, uh, uh, ostensibly indecisive about this is because he felt that this shouldn't be fixed in stone, that the goal of government should be to make people's lives better. Um, he understood that he was living in a world, and he and all of the founders understood that they, he lived, they lived in a world that was rapidly changing socially and economically, but also at the level of government. Um, so in their view, um, the kind of balance between what gets done at the locality and what gets done at the center was was always going to be uh, changing very rapidly as state capacity grew, um, as we learned about how to govern certain things and do certain things better at different levels of government. So all of that is to say um, that the founders didn't they believe that they were creating a framework which was going to last hopefully in perpetuity but they didn't believe that they were establishing a set of rules for how we were going to be governed that were going to uh, last in perpetuity so when somebody like thomas jefferson said you know uh said you know i imagine the constitution is going to be rewritten every generation um he might have been extreme by thinking that the entire constitution was going to be rewritten every generation um but he wasn't so unusual in think in among the founders and thinking that some of the basic uh basic structures or institutions would have to be rethunk, uh, rethunk, rethought uh, 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 every generation. So, um, so um, I think what's, what's, what's um, uh, uh, remarkable is that they thought uh, they wanted an activist government and they thought activist government could happen at different levels. They would have been extremely upset or disconcerted to see how difficult it was uh, to legislate major changes. Mm, absolutely. And so I w- I'd like to read uh, actually a, sec- a section of the Constitution of the state of Texas, um, of, all, of all states, because um, I think it, it's interesting the way that it gets at this point. All political power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit. The faith of the people of Texas stands pledged to the preservation of a Republican form of government and subject to this limitation only. They have at all times the inalienable right to, to alter, reform, or abolish their government in any such manner as they think expedient. No, I mean, I think that sort of captures, uh, uh, captures the sort of the sentiment, which I think 
uh, you know, most people uh, or a lot of people uh, would have held from the from the early 18th century onwards. The government exists to improve the lives of the people, and any government that isn't doing that is a, a government that made, needed to be amended, changed, or in the extreme case, abolished. And so going back to the methodology of the founders in, in the drafting of the Declaration, clearly they're invoking that idea. Yes, absolutely. No, I mean, their idea was that the British government had been beneficent and benevolent, and it had done everything that government should do. It had promoted the uh, made uh, had done everything it could to sort of promote uh, to protect equality. It had done all these things to uh, to made it make it possible for for all of its subjects to pursue happiness. And in their view, in the view of most of the founders, it had been unique in doing that. But since 1760, it had ceased to do that. And so the first thing you try to do when a government gets lost or loses its way is you try to reform it. Well, before even trying to reform it, the first thing you try to do is try to vote the guys out of office who had were preventing reform. Then you try constitutional reform or various sort of a, a, attempts to reform to reform the government on the whole. Uh, uh, on the whole, um, and then when that becomes impossible, then you experiment with revolution, and that's I think the the kind of uh, the stages that that ended up happening. Um, I mean, the issue in in the case of the North Americans and with with um, uh, um, I mean, British Americans as a whole is that it became very difficult to differentiate or distinguish between getting rid of the uh, the prime minister um, and initiating reform because the prime minister was blocking any possibility of constitutional reform. Right, and it's and it's also interesting to kind of consider the idea that there are different degrees of revolution. In other words, I'm sure that the founders. Took some of the ideas of the, on which the British government was based to heart and wanted to preserve many of those things. Oh, absolutely! I mean, so, so, so. I mean, the, I mean, let me just tell you how extreme this was. Uh, so, George Washington, uh, uh, when he receives a copy of the Declaration of Independence in July 1776, he's in uh, uh, you know Northern Manhattan, was now you know Washington Heights. He's seeing the. British troops disembarking on Staten Island, the Red Coast disembarking with this massive force on Staten Island. He reads the declaration to his troops in Manhattan and says, see, um, I'm glosses that tells the troops, see, uh, I've read you the Declaration of Independence. What this goes to show is that we're fighting on behalf of the British Constitution. Mm. So in his view, right, so he's going to, so he thinks that these North American troops, the Continental Army, is going to be fighting on behalf of the British Constitution against the Red Coast, the British Army. Right. So just, you know, so his view was that the new government that was going to be created with the deck that had been created with the Declaration of Independence was uh, a government which was faithful to the British Constitution. Um, and in many ways, those were the kinds of principles uh, that were brought forward, I think, uh, you know, certainly in the in the Articles of the of Confederation, but also in the Constitution. I mean, it was a simply a more Republican form of the British Constitution. Mm. So there definitely is a spectrum uh, between, you know, reform and revolution. That's right. Absolutely. So with the, the mindset of the founders in mind, now fast forwarding to the day, we are in a situation where amending the Constitution is difficult. <laughs> as an understatement, I, I, I would I would think. I mean, we need we need uh, the uh, an amendment to be initiated by the houses of Congress at the federal level, and we need a two thirds majority vote in each of the House and the Senate, and then we need approval by the state legislatures by three quarters of the state legislatures in order to ratify an amendment. This is 
politically infeasible at this point. I mean, we have, um, you know, I mean, I mean, to, to get sixty-six percent of the Senate to do anything is it requires a miracle. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Can anticipate the answer, but I'm curious to hear what what the founders would have thought of the of that that of the eventuality that this language that they had written to protect the ideas in the Constitution ultimately ended up undermining the people's ability to express their will. Right. I mean, so so no. I mean, I I think they would have not liked that. And let me let me again sort of take a step back and ha- one has to sort of think about uh, the world that they had been brought up in. So. Before England's revolution of 1688-89, the English government, the English parliament, we think of the English parliament as what became the British parliament, as a legislative body. But up until 1688, the British legislative, or the English parliament as it was in in the 17th century, becoming the British legislature in 1707 with the Anglo-Scottish Union, um, didn't pass many laws. It passed very, very few laws, and certainly none that we would think of, or very few of a social and economic nature, right? I mean, they passed laws like saying, you know, when Lord Roos uh, and his wife had ir- uh, had irreconcilable differences, they passed a law saying they could get divorced, right? That, that was, the kind, you know, that was a law that they, uh, that they passed uh, in, in, the 17th, in the 17th century. But after the revolution of 1688, there was a complete sea change, and suddenly the British Parliament started passing laws all the time, passing, you know, uh, huge numbers of laws, um, which were themselves a tiny fraction of what they actually debated, um, but doing all sorts of things, building roads, building post offices, building harbors, providing disaster relief, um, uh, uh, subsidizing immigration, providing prizes to give incentives to, for various developments. It was an incredibly robust legislature um, uh, in, in, uh, in the 18th century. Um, and it was very much, it was very much the sense that, that the founders had that it was that government um, that had been doing all the sorts of good things which they liked um, that the British Empire had been doing up until 1760. So when you know when they when it came to forming their own government in 1776, um, they very much wanted this legislative activity. And just reading, um, going through the resolutions of the Second Continental Congress, it was remarkable how much they were how much they were many laws they were passing. Um, uh, to do a variety of things to jumpstart the economy, to obviously to fight the war, to print money, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the notion uh, that that we've created um, uh, a set of institutions where it's simply very difficult to get any kind of business done would have been disappointing to them, I think, to say the least. Absolutely. So, so, so taking that mindset of a founder uh, and looking at the quagmire that we find ourselves in today clearly the the founders cared a lot about the opinions of other people and of future generations and, he, and they even go so far as to say as much in the declaration so clearly clearly they're thinking a lot about legitimacy and the perception of legitimacy as they essentially overthrow british rule and ignore british law in favor of natural law and invoke their their popular sovereignty their right to revolt Looking at the looking at the situation today, how how would a founder, uh, how if 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 one were alive today, it, approach the same problem today, where we have we it, it's impossible to to pass a constitutional amendment. We don't have the right of initiative, referendum, or recall. We do, nevertheless, still have natural law, and we do have we do have the people's right. Um, and but we have, a, a, but there's a difficult road in terms of 
finding legitimacy in altering the Constitution outside the bounds of the Constitution. Right. I mean, I think it would have been, you know, I think the founders would have would have found themselves in a bit of a conundrum. Um, they would have wanted uh, go- governments, that is to say both state and federal governments that would be active. Um, uh, they would have been disappointed about how difficult it was to in, uh, engender or to get action going, to get to, to promote real change. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, they would have been very happy to look at, uh, you know, a United States, which was, ex- you know, which is, you know, one of the uh, commercial uh, or economic leaders in the world. And, you know, obviously the, fa- the fact that the United States was a superpower. So they would have wanted, I think, uh, to figure out some way. And, you know, nevertheless, they would have seen a lot of analogies. I mean, I think uh, to the United States position in the world today to Britain's position in the 18th century. That is to say, Britain was also the world's, uh, you know, certainly the world's superpower after the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War after 1763. Britain was also, uh, you know, arguably, uh, uh, you know, a commercial or an economic powerhouse, and yet um, it was unable to promote internal reform. So I think they would have would have seen concerns, uh, wanting wanting to figure out some way to to promote reform. Uh, they want, would have wanted to preserve the kind of uh, economic and geopolitical status that, that the United States has without necessarily endorsing any, you know, any kind of military action, but just a sort of status. Um, but um, I think they would have been very, you know, frustrated. They would have wanted to know how they could promote some kind of change. And I think um, uh, it's very difficult to imagine how that change uh can initiate can be initiated um, uh, a, a radical change can be initiated precise at the center because precisely as you said this is a profoundly divided country uh, and whether or not whatever the divisions in the country are I mean the reality is is that um, uh, nobody has a supermajority in either the Senate or in the House of Representatives so to promote some kind of constitutional amendment is very difficult and that means you know uh, if one were to explore it, I think one would have to look at the successful, the successful ways of changing important forms of legislation. And again, I mean, I think sort of, uh, and we, uh, as we were talking earlier, I mean, I think gay marriage is an interesting model because it's something where um, it the change happened initially at the sort of local level and then created uh, an, an amazing momentum outside of Congress. Um, and I think um, I think that might be the mo- have to be the sort of model that anyway that the founders might have looked to for going forward. Right. I mean, so we're living in a time now where we have technology that would have been very difficult to imagine in 1776, sure. in, including um, and in particular uh, a social network that connects us through electronic devices, and we can see an idea, a, a meme, or whatever can um, can go viral and reach millions of people in in matters of days. Now, it seems to me that that technology is a useful political tool, and we've already seen that. What, what is of interest, though, is that there's, there's the possibility of, of a group of citizens coming together and saying, we have a reform package that transcends the ideologies of both parties, that, that appeals to the progressive instincts of the Democratic Party and its base, and most importantly, the base of supporters, but also appeals to the uh, the instinct for change that 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 propelled Donald Trump um, in, into an electoral college victory. Um, 
it, one could imagine this happening and one could imagine this circulating through, you right. know, through, you know, through the Internet, through the social network and reaching untold millions of people, tens of millions of people and, and, and perhaps a majority of the eligible voters, in which case it starts to look very, very similar to the will of the people and a popular a popular mandate and a declaration of reform that is outside of the four corners of the Constitution, but nevertheless very much consistent with it. Right. No, I think that that's right. I mean, but, but let me, I mean, the one one thing that I, I would want to say is, well, we have a lot more, me, I mean, sort of uh, uh, remarkable media capacity today that one shouldn't, the analogies to the 18th century are actually much closer on those on those lines than we think. Newspapers in the 18th century were the new media. They reached very deep into society. Many, many people read newspaper. And we, you know, I don't know how many of us actually read hard copy newspapers anymore. But, uh, you know, in those days, uh, the vast majority of people not not only that not didn't necessarily buy a copy of the newspaper, had access to the newspaper, reading it in a coffee house, reading it in a tavern, etc. And that was the way ideas circulated. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that it's it's through media uh, that uh, then one can reach a wide variety of people. Um, my only my only caveat and my is that I sort of think that um, new ideas, at least in the 21st century, seem to uh, start and gain momentum rather than kind of a spontaneous sort of uprising. And I think that was kind of the way things happened in the 18th century as well. I mean, one one needs to remember that the most kind of radical criticism of the British imperial government started in Massachusetts. I mean, there was criticism elsewhere, up and down, but it was activity started in Massachusetts, and then it spread. Um, uh, and I think I think one could imagine the same kind of model happening here. That is to say, uh, one state, one locality, one group of people could start uh, a movement for some kind of, of constitutional reform, and then it would move from place to place uh, uh, based on on the arguments, et cetera, that would happen there. And, and again, I think it could move very, very quickly from something starting in a locality, I mean, even in, in a particular city, um, uh, uh, just because of social media. And much the way that I think, I think uh, you know, the, uh, the reactions of the Boston Tea Party, the news about the Boston Tea Party moved up and down uh, the eastern seaboard into the West Indies, you know, uh, and across the British Empire. It was that particular uh, activity uh, which radicalized the number of people, or at least the British government's response to that activity. Um, uh, and so I, I think the same kind of analogy would ho- could hold true today. Mm. And certainly the spread of support for revolution uh, is, is really interesting, particularly to read the play-by-play of the, the months leading up to July of 1776. Right. And seeing, you know, the, you know, for example, the delegations, uh, you know, the New York delegation, for example, which, you know, which, which, need, which didn't have approval to, to sign off on, on independence. Uh, right. And, and, you know, and some of the members of the New York delegation even though they didn't have approval, uh, you know, were themselves ambivalent about it. So no, no, no. I mean, I think, and I think that's right. And you see people's, and you see people's, uh, and you know, this is one of the things that sort of was remarkable to read, me reading the correspondence of some of the sort of more radical folk, uh, say Sam Adams, John Adams, et cetera, people who thought relatively early on that independence was going to become necessary, them describing how people who were much more likely, who were sitting on the fence or, you know, opposed to, uh, radical reform increasingly became convinced of the necessity of it when it became so difficult to actually uh, achieve some kind of piecemeal reform. So 
some kind of imperial reform from the center. So I think, I mean, I think you're right um, that it's through this discussion, through the airings of, of these ideas, through some ideas being, uh, you know, as I said, if some resolutions uh, or some determination to pass a constitutional amendment was affected, uh, you know, at, at a, in a single state, it would lead to a debate in other states as well. Absolutely. And it's comforting to realize that one shouldn't become discouraged if it doesn't, if it's not easy, if it doesn't happen overnight, if it's not monotonic and it just, you know, doesn't go in one direction where there could be backsliding and so on. Oh, absolutely. You know? There's always going to be oscillations in any, in any kind of political movement. And again, I, I mean, what, what's remarkable to me is, is actually how quickly attitudes do change on some subjects. Um, uh, you know, again, you know, if you told me when I was in college that we would have something like an Affordable Care Act, I would have laughed. Mm -hmm. uh, if you told me when I was in college that there was going to be that, uh, 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 you know, gay marriage would be widely accepted sure. in this country. I mean, these things are, you know, so these things which we think of as thing, changes which can only happen uh, really slowly, I mean, they kind of reach a breaking point and then there's quite rapid change. And I think one shouldn't be so... Uh, you know, uh, too pessimistic. But I think there is possibility of affecting quite radical change through normal means. Mm, today's radical change is tomorrow's is tomorrow's law. That's right. right. Absolutely. So I wanted to just real quick come back to the topic of slavery and its treatment in the Declaration of Independence. So sure. and and so so I'll throw it to you. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we have uh, tended to. Uh, assume, I mean, and there's been a lot of rich scholarship of the past, you know, three, four decades saying, both reminding us that so many of the founders actually own slaves, whole, uh, own slaves, um, and, you know, and obviously one points to the three fifths, you know, the free fifths compromise in the Constitution and think that, you know, the founders didn't really care about slavery, weren't terribly concerned about it, but I think nothing could be farther from the truth, that in the 1760s and early 1770s, there was a real movement throughout North America uh, against slavery and the slave trade. There were all sorts of prohibitive slave duties that were passed in the various assemblies. Uh, there were petitions submitted uh, up and down the North American colonies and indeed in the West Indies against slavery and the slave trade. Um, and uh, uh, the argument, and, and in, you know, in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Thomas Jefferson included a clause uh, which... Uh, you know, condemn slavery uh, and the slave trade. And I think there's an echo of that uh, in the clause which, uh, which condemns George III for having vetoed legislation coming from the assemblies. Uh, and that legislation could only have been uh, uh, slave duties and, and prohibitions on slavery. Um, so I think there was a significant movement among the founders uh, against slavery. Mm. And again, I mean, you know, at the risk of the counterfactual, it's, it, it seems that it was it would have been politically feasible to end slavery in 1776 in the Declaration. If That's right. That I mean, I think it would have been. I think it would have been co uh, completely conceivable um, that that, you know, that the clause was taken out had everything to do with the protests of of two South Carolina uh, South Carolinian delegates who were themselves significant slave owners um, and the anxiety of the founders to maintain consensus. Um, but this was not a world in which, I mean, it was a world in which profits from, uh, from rice, from tobacco, from slave pro uh, products were declining. Um, and it, it, w it was not a world in which cotton was perceived to be inevitable. It was only the onset of cotton, which I think saved slavery, if that's the word you want to use, mm. uh, in the American South. And so it became much more difficult to get rid of it. Right. 
So it really brings to mind the phrase, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Absolutely. It was a real moment that could have been seized upon that would have, you know, fundamentally altered, I think, race relations in this country today. I mean, had the founders actually uh, 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 held their ground and insisted on an anti-slavery clause in the Declaration. Wow. A historical tragedy. That didn't happen then. Well, so there you have it. A Today's radical idea is tomorrow's reality, and a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. My guest today has been Steve Pincus, uh, Bradford Durfee Professor of History at Yale University, and most recently author of The Heart of the Declaration, The Founder's Case for an Activist Government, which came out in September of 2016 this year. You can find a copy at Atticus Bookstore in New Haven and pretty much everywhere else books are sold. Steve, thanks so much for being on the program. I really appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much.